namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddham dhammang sangkang anutrang pacayang namasami I've been thinking about a conversation I had a few weeks back that I had with a sort of a distant family member and how I could have been more skillful in that that conversation but as it came out this isn't a person I know very well actually it's an in-law and um but he started a conversation with me he said what outreach do you do and i think the the tenor of the conversation immediately there was a sense that uh oh this is uh this is going to have to be a conversation around defending myself because that seemed to be where it was headed uh, immediately by the tone and i knew this man member he he tended towards very conservative values and fairly strong views and opinions about his own values and it was interesting that the the tenor of the conversation unfortunately caught me off guard so i d- i didn't think that i was prepared to answer the question well because immediately that's what the 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 felt sense was was uh there has to be some sort of defensiveness here but it, immediately what what happened was sort of an antagonizing sense that i had and i said well we One of the things we do is we'll go out and uh we'll bring our bowls out and we'll, we'll walk on Amshan in the morning and and people will give us food. And his and his answer to me was oh so you take from society. <laughs> and I knew I knew you know I thought, why did I start with that one? <laughs> <laughs> and I knew I had started with that one because I wanted to I I I knew it was unskillful there was a, a sense of wanting to rile him up. So as a family member so <laughs> and then very quickly i i had mentioned this before to some of the people here but the conversation then turned into a question around capitalism and the economy and and what was interesting is in my own mind i just it was like um this tie expression is mimi sati it wasn't mindfulness wasn't there mindfulness wasn't quick enough and and i started to talk with him about the economy and and capitalism and you know he was challenging me about my not supporting capitalism and and uh and all of a sudden I'm in this conversation that has nothing to do with spirituality or uh lessening greed hatred and delusion until a friend came in and and said hey listen you know you're talking about the economy and um and this is a, a spiritual person this doesn't this doesn't really work and so we finally got into a conversation but it it couldn't really it didn't quite work it it uh i think also because because someone had had actually corrected him it put him in a position where he just didn't feel like he could listen and fair enough that's it's understandable in these types of conversations but later on it got me to thinking about how how best to communicate this kind of thing and i think for my family members i've learned I have to be extremely careful and uh it's it's almost always best not to to actually talk talk with them about any kind of spiritual matters I've found unless they're 
very keen and interested, which can be kind of rare. But they do seem to be keen and interested when it's anyone other than their brother or son who is talking about it. So I found that in the case when my family members would come to the monastery, they'd all of a sudden be very interested. Because I was just a brother and son, I wasn't. No matter what I wore or uh, even how I behaved, it, it didn't uh, seem to affect the situation. And that's, that's of course, very natural. But the, the question that this more distant family member had, had uh, brought up was, was interesting. And so, you know, what, is, what outreach do you do? And I think, I think it's very hard to, to sometimes explain to people how what it is that we're doing is uh, sort of the, the supreme outreach, I would say. And I know that like sort of from a, a worldly extreme, I had heard from an Ajahn Jeff talk actually that, um, I don't know how many of you know this name, but Stephen Colbert is a, a famous person in America who now is, I think he heads the... Uh, late show or the tonight show or whatever it is um and i haven't seen that but but i i know of him and legend jeff was you know he's, he's a very funny man he's extremely liberal and he's known for for uh being able to say very funny things anyway he he basically Ajahn jeff was quoting him and said buddhism you wrap yourself up in a bed sheet you go sit underneath a tree and you breathe i don't get it and uh I thought Ajahn Jeff's response would be to say, well, that's not what Buddhism is. But Ajahn Jeff instead said, yeah, that's what Buddhism is. That's what we do. Um, but it's how we do it and what we do, you know, how we watch the breath, that really defines what it is that we're doing. And so everything that the Buddhist teachings keep pointing to are skillful means towards uh, letting go of our attachments and seeing the Four Noble Truths, seeing how, how it is that we're causing ourselves problems. And no matter how much we try to alleviate problems in the world, we can't uproot suffering through through just being helpful. It doesn't work in that way. So I think the better way to explain it is we're not really doing what, what in the worldly sense is outreach. It's essentially in-reach. You know, we're reaching inward. And through our reaching inward, through, through this, this in-reach, we're, we're actually able to help not only ourselves, but anyone around us in, in so many different ways. And as practitioners, it, it's, um, it's an interesting project that we're engaging in. It is, a, it is a project, it is a plan, it's a path that the Buddha's pointed out. And it's something that for most of us who are practicing, we, we take a, a great interest in. And, and we do see that there is a, a very strong value in what, in what we're doing. But that's not always true. And because there are inclinations in the mind, there's always intentions, it can sometimes be hard to maintain that, that interest. I found that uh, essentially in, my, in myself, the, the strongest experiences that I had when I was practicing the Dhamma, in terms of that interest, was actually before I became a monk. And that's also this, this sense of, of the beginner's mind, the mind that's fresh and seeing things clearly 
and for the first time. So it's an interesting experience to sort of reflect on what it is that we find of interest, of value in, in our own practice. You know, why are we doing this? What is the, the purpose behind what it is that we're doing with the, with the Buddhist teachings? And so there needs to be a, an evaluation as we're going along, a questioning of how it is we're understanding uh, the mind, how it is we're, we're looking inwardly. So these reflections that we chant every day, that we chant, uh, chanted just tonight, we say the words ehi pasiko, and um, ehi means like to, to come forth, to come forward, to, to see, to have a look, pasiko. So, you know, the Dhamma has within it as a quality of sort of waving its arms in the, in the air at us and saying, hey, come on over here, have a look, this is, this is, this is of interest, this is something that's important. It's sort of like a, a cave that's obscured, and we don't see it. But then someone over, over near the cave says, this is a fascinating cave. You should come over here and see it. And then we come over, and we, and we have a look at the, the, this cave, and we decide to go inside. And that's open aiko. That's leading inward. So the Dhamma is, is to be brought in. And so when we're, when we're reflecting on these qualities, that's the qualities of the Dhamma, then... It can also be that our attitudes follow suit, that they, they would um, be able to see that clearly when, when, we're, when we're practicing the Dhamma. So when we hear the teachings from this particular tradition around the fact that everything is teaching us, that's, that's quite true. That's, that's very much a mindset that we can use. But as I was speaking about before, I, I've definitely noticed the easy enthusiasm that came when I was a beginner requires effort, requires clear seeing, and, and especially dealing with the sometimes overpowering feeling of the, the what are the kilesas, greed and unskillful desire, or unwholesome desire, and aversion, anger, and then just the confusion and delusion around around the mind. So when we're exploring uh, how it is that we're paying attention, then we can see uh, we can see clearly like what's our what's our attitude towards that attention, what's our attitude towards our own interest in the Dhamma. And I think it does need it does need a spark sometimes. It needs some questioning and some some encouragement. So in Ahipasiko, the word the words that were translated in the West here were, were encouraging investigation. But I've heard Ajahn Sumedho say that's kind of wimpy. It's, uh, it's really kind of a, like, a, hey, look over here, wake up. This is interesting. Have a look. It's exciting. It's something that, that uh, our minds can take uh, great interest in. And so the way that I that I try to work with this is to question for myself, well, why is it sometimes that I'm not interested in the Dhamma? What is it that uh, where my mind is moving towards that in any given point of the day is not in sync with the Buddhist teachings or is not in sync with seeing clearly, is moving away from that? So this could be simply a, a conversing with someone. So the Buddha pointed to right speech 
as so important as a, as a path factor. And I think almost all of us here can, can understand that because it's so easy for the mind to slip during speech because it, it's an enjoyable activity and it can become quite unenjoyable quickly. So when we're speaking, the Buddha does encourage us to reflect on what it is that we're doing. You know, what's our motivation? Is it skillful or unskillful? Are we saying things that are ultimately in our best interest? And, and also to reflect on whether what we're saying is in the other person's best interest. So it's, you know, it is, it is essentially like a, a continuing investigation, even, you know, while we're, while we're living it, while we're, we're in our meditation and we're uh, experiencing a path of, of thought that's moving through the mind, then we can, we can catch that and have a look at that. Because it's so easy, just like in conversation, to just go with the flow, to just go with the good feeling that we're experiencing or um, the interest and just say, well, it's all right now. It's okay to have this conversation or, or think in this way, even though I know it's not really inclining inwards. It's not reaching in. It's, it's actually the opposite. It's, it's outreach. It's trying to satisfy ourselves sometimes based on our outward experiences. But it doesn't have to be looked at as drudgery or painful or, or something that is too difficult, insurmountable. It's quite encouraging that when we when we see clearly, when we've uh, we've moved in an unskillful direction, how quickly and how uh, much with with just some some effort in the practice we can we can move towards that which is skillful, towards refraining from saying something that we know in the past has has got us into trouble. Um, I find in conversation it's so easy that. The this sense of I comes up so frequently around how it is that that we're conversing with with other people. So I often oftentimes I'll I'll just be talking to someone and all, and all of a sudden I can either get easily offended or I could sense that uh, this is the time to to say something funny or that I'm misunderstanding what someone's saying or it's confusing and all these things arise and there can be a moment of of clarity around, okay, you know, this is this isn't a, a conversation that's gonna gonna help me in in the next hour. So when I can clearly note that and then steer it away, there's there's such a feeling of of sukha of happiness that arises. One of the Thai monks who came to live at Abhigiri, he produced some artsy Dhamma books, and he'd, he'd occasionally write some poems. And I remember one of them in particular, I don't have the wording exactly right, but it was something along the lines of, the sun is warm, the sky is blue, and the wind is calm, and every day I am a friend to myself. I find that to be uh, quite a, a beautiful reflection. Like, How am I being uh, a friend? How am I being a friend to myself? How am I engaging in friendliness towards uh, what it is that I'm doing. So the intentions are constantly moving in the mind, whether we're sitting in, in silence or we're very active, engaging with other people or, or just active by ourselves, whatever it is we're doing, we're experiencing these intentions. And we have an opportunity to direct the intentions towards ways that are helpful for ourselves.
And ultimately, that's, that's what's helpful for other people as well. But the conundrum and the strange thing is that I believe for most of us, we know how to be friends to ourselves. We know usually the, the nicest, kindest, best things that we can do for ourselves, for how it is that we're engaging with other people, how it is we're engaging with our own practice. But it's, it's amazing how quickly the mind moves, how quickly this can change. And it's not, it's not meant to be, a, uh, of course, a judgmental question. Like, you know, you're not, you're not being a good friend to yourself. Uh, you really should be a better friend. But it is quite a, a nice reflection, I think, to, to help that, that, that reaching in, to help the mind to come, to come back inward and steady itself on the experiences that we're having with our, our khandhas. The, the contact, the, the unpleasant and pleasant feelings that we're experiencing, or the perceptions we have, the mental formations, and the, the cognizing all of that. That is, that is our experience, and, and often we're, we're convoluting it and changing it in, in so many ways, and these are through our intentions. And it's just, it's just amazing that, that we often know we're, we're, we're wise to the game. We, we understand what is usually the best thing to do. But we make choices that aren't skillful for us, that are, that are unhelpful. And so, as we're going along, we're, we're trying to learn, we're doing our best to learn the skillful path that, that the Buddha pointed out. So in, in our meditation practice, we have a continuous flow of experiences that are encouraging us towards this movement inwards. But the thought worlds, they, they inhabit our minds and they come into the mind and they're just, they're just habits, they're so impersonal and they feel very personal, they feel almost, I would use the word thick with what I am. You know, the thoughts I have, what defines me, the beliefs I have, the views, how I think about this or how I think about that. And they, they flow on and on. And so every now and again, we get wind of that. We see it very clearly and then we make a choice. Okay, I'm going to come back to the breath. Come back to whatever object it is I'm focusing on. And even with all this determination, it's amazing. It just, there goes another three, four, five thought worlds that we're inhabiting, and then, and then we, we try to come back again. But again, it's not a dreary practice. It's the friendly practice. It's the, this is the, the practice that's, that's saying, pasiko, look, look what's happening. And then we're, you know, we're essentially, what we're doing is training. And that's, that's an interesting uh, value that's actually very strong in the world as well, this, this sense of training. Training towards goodness, towards those things that are going to be beneficial for us and useful for us in what we can sometimes think of as a, as a battle. We're learning tools, we're learning ways how to, how to handle the, the weapons of our mind. And so coming back to this, this sense of, of interest is 
it's something that that I think is of so much importance to us because it's it's pointing to right effort. It's pointing to to how it is that we're we're working with uh, the Buddha's teaching on right effort. We're in, you know encouraging skillful states to to arise and continue in our minds. We're, we're encouraging unskillful states to decrease and to not arise. And learning how to learning how to sustain these skillful states. And so that that interest is something that is to be developed. It's not something that I I found in my own practice is is really intrinsic. What I find is that as I as I watch my mind, that the the tendency of it is towards inclining to disinterest. And so it's kind of like like dealing with a toddler, like kind of coming back and and pointing out what's you know what's important in the situation, getting things kind of clear and focused. We had a, a group of or several groups of it's like a synchronicity of, of Catholics coming to the monastery and uh, I came across also went out to, to one of the schools and taught and I think we had three groups here in, in one week and there was two groups in one visit. So what was interesting is is I fielded a lot of questions. There were these about I think there were about sixteen, seventeen um, girls from a Catholic school in Ottawa and um, one of them is a daughter of, of uh, one of the supporters here and he was keen to, to bring the class over to the monastery and the teacher was also keen so they came over and they had a lot of questions and they, it was very sweet they were you know they were they were 10 years old and so they were asking me things about uh, what I'm allowed to do what I'm not allowed to do what can I eat what can I not eat how do we get punished in the monastery? Um, <laughs> I did not take the opportunity to joke when uh, that question arose. I just said, we don't get punished. Uh, they all kind of, their shoulders kind of all came down. And uh, one of them said, that's good. And, um, and they asked, one of them asked the question, are you allowed to vacuum? And, <laughs> And I, I, I kind of thought, oh, is my carpet dirty? But what was what was funny is we were we were talking a little bit about the monastery, and then I happened to mention two words, three words actually: ticks, Lyme disease. And I said those three words, and then and then it was just birth occurred. Every child had their story about ticks and Lyme disease, and and it was interesting to see their own just this generation of views and opinions. And I continued to try to ask questions, although I, I was, it was amazing. It was just how the mind worked. It's just, that's where it went with these girls. They just asked, started asking all these questions about Lyme disease. And I don't know that much about Lyme disease or ticks, but um, that I, I tried to tell them, but you know, you can ask me questions about Dhamma, but I'm, I really don't know. You'll have to ask your parents about these things. But it was interesting that that's, that's what the mind had, it, uh, what, what grasped them for a moment was uh, there, there was something that they could really sink their teeth into and, and focus on, uh, something that the habits of the mind just kind of went around. And, and even though they had, they had an interest in everything that was happening before that, I could see that the, the movement took hold in that direction. 
and the, both the teacher and I were, were struggling a little bit on trying to get them back on track. And I just, I just thought that was a, a nice sort of metaphor for just how the mind works. It, it can kind of come up with these, these, these views and opinions, and they can seem so valuable and important. And they're just, they're just leading out. They're just going outward. And they're not pointing at, well, what's, what's actually happening? I, I had a sense for them. Some of them were probably anxious or something, or they, the way they were, they were talking about their views about this. But we often don't see that when we're when our minds move in these directions. We don't we don't see that the these strong views and opinions are uh, they're diluting. They're putting a, a cloud over our our minds. And uh, in a monastery, you know, we when we were talking about the inreach, I mean, this is one of the sort of the ways that a monastery functions to to help people is to help us look at our how our views and opinions cause so many problems with how it is we're really engaging, even just letting, letting go of, of how we engage with others. Cause you know, that's, that can be a real rat's nest of, of views. Just, um, it can be a very thicket of views, uh, when we get into, you know, every, everybody seems happy and good until you start expressing your different opinions to each other. And then debates can arise and, and it can be quite unpleasant. So, but when we're alone, then those, those views also seem to crop up and, and, uh, they're also not challenged. So we can think about all of the interesting ideas and understandings we have of the world and how it works or, or even the Dhamma, just our views about the Dhamma and, and not see that, you know, like bring up, oh, wait a minute, this is a view. This is just an opinion I have. With myself, it's 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 mostly the way that I can see this so so easily is around around other people, creating other people. And if I'm not coming from an inward focus around that, trying to see like, well, is is this true? Asking myself, is it is it permanent? Is it true? Is it something that I can really point to as something that is reliable? That I can I can really see is a way for me to see to see whether it is that my perception is is correct or not then then I can get quite quite caught up with with views and opinions about my thoughts about other people or what they're doing and then it comes back to myself as well views and opinions about the self and it's it's uh it's interesting because over and over again if I just if I just keep coming back to a sense of like how am I creating my sense of self or how am I creating another person then that question really brings brings it back to oh yeah you know I really have no idea what somebody else is thinking you know they say things but I can think of ten thousand things I say that I don't even mean and um, and it really doesn't doesn't point to much it's it's not substantial and it's ephemeral it doesn't it doesn't uh, nothing really lasts with other people whenever we think of someone if we're not with them right there in the moment. It's just always changing because the condos are always changing. So we can't really say that that uh, whatever we we what we can say is whenever we're thinking about somebody, it's not true. And then, of course, comes back to ourselves. Whatever we think about ourselves is is uh, it's usually not true. It's not something we can point to that that there is uh, stability around, 
which is, of course, the, the Buddhist teaching around not-self. We can't point to any intrinsic factor that defines uh, who and what we are, that stays permanent. So we bring up these, these reflections in our practice, and they're, they're, they're pointing the Dhamma inward. They're pointing the Dhamma towards realizing the Dhamma. And the Buddha, he often has a, a list I mean, he has many lists, but uh, in one he, he says, I see, I see nothing else that is more important than this one factor in practicing the Dhamma. Although he says that like 20 or 30 times, so you have to understand the context of it. But one of them is, is, is Yoniso Manasikara, which is looking at things with, with wise attention, looking at things in the correct way, in the way that's going to help us see with insight. So in a way that is allowing us to see suffering, allowing us to see how suffering occurs, how we create it, and our sense of anicca, of impermanence, or things not being sure, and then not self. And so Yoni Sikara is really pointing to that. It's pointing to how we look at our experiences and the objects we're picking up through our senses in a way that's, that's provoking Dhamma, that's bringing Dhamma inward. As opposed to Ayoni Somani Sikara, which is unwise attention. So Ajahn Chah would use the metaphor around a, like a cup. And he'd talk about seeing the cup is already broken. That it has the intrinsic quality of being impermanent. And it's hard to, to quite grasp that on a, um, a material level, but from a point of view of the mind, we, we're working with that to actually engage with the objects we, that we experience as being impermanent, as being already broken, so that when they break, the reaction is not one of discontent, of that it shouldn't have been that way. It's more of, oh yeah, that's right, that's exactly how it is. So that's what, that's what Yoni Somanisikara is really that's how it's really helping us in the practice. And it takes effort to bring it up because our minds aren't inclined toward, inclining towards bringing it up. If we see a beautiful person, then it's very easy to, to notice the mind wants to focus on that beauty. It wants to see that beauty. It wants to see uh, that beauty as something that is of value. But beauty fades, it goes away. And it's, it's not permanent. And so, of course, we can see beautiful things. And if we're not attached to them, then it's okay to, to see beauty in, in things. There isn't a problem with that. But it's our attachment that's a problem. So, Yoni Simoni Sikara is, is encouraging us, well, you know, fair enough. There are things that might be more attractive to us. Uh, that comes out of our own intentions and habits for us seeing that. Because one person could see one object and say it's quite ugly, and another would see the same object and say it's quite attractive. So the fact is, even though it's it's something that, that's shifting, it still is there, our, our sense of something being beautiful. But it's this it's this attachment and wanting it to stay the same that is the problem, or denying that it changes. And so Yoni Siumani Sikara is saying, well, wait a minute, let's look at, let's literally look at it. So, for example, you can, you can look at a human body and 
you observe, of course, that the human body is made up of all these different parts. And if we were to see really clearly a human body, of course, most of us know that it's, it's quite unattractive. You can think about all the things crawling on your body right now, and uh, or the trillions and trillions of, of non-human bacteria that live in and outside your body. And these things we just don't see, or we don't bring up to ourselves. And when we do, then we get a balance. So it's not teaching us to, to hate the body, it's just teaching us around how to balance this, this view of seeing our own body and other people's bodies in a, in a way that's not supportive of Dhamma, that's not supportive of putting down greed or aversion, and especially not supportive of clear seeing and clear understanding. So all of these, all of these ways that the, the Buddha is pointing to using these tools, they're pointing us towards an inclination inwards because our inclination tends to be out into the world. It's outreaching. It's trying to get something from our experience or get away from something to gain usually some sensual satisfaction. But if not, uh, another way for me to, to become something to identify myself as something, to create who I am, what I am, or to get away from this when it's, when it's unpleasant. And the tendencies are so strong that it's, it's quite helpful for us to come back again and again to understanding how we can focus our minds towards the Dhamma, towards what the, the Buddha is teaching because then we start to gain insight into our experience. And then that in itself is reciprocal in, in encouraging us towards this interest, this inward interest towards the Dhamma. But it can, you know, it can be, it can be difficult at times because it's not always, it's not always clear and there can be setbacks and there can be dry periods in Dhamma practice. And for, for people who practice for years, it just, it tends to be that way. It's just up and down. And um, it's not like an ever-steady increase of happiness each day until there's just constant bliss. One of my family members, uh, I, was, I was just talking uh, with him uh, on the phone, and, and I'd, I, I just asked in general how he was doing. He said, oh, things are really great. Things are really wonderful. I'm just... So happy right now, and uh, and I was oh great, that's really good. And and he always says, "How are you doing?" <laughs> Checking in in the same way, and I and I never have that response to him. And it's funny just weighing weighing these two responses, because usually I'm answering him on a on a sense of of where I am in the moment, and where I am in the moment is is rarely like blissful, especially when I'm talking on the phone. So. I think he interprets my, you know, my experience, even though I'm, I'm also talking about just in general, as that I'm unhappy, and I, I have a hard time kind of explaining. No, I'm not. There's not a discord or unhappiness. I'm just trying to sort of point out how I'm seeing my own mind, and I want to encourage him. Well, if you go into a room quietly by yourself and sit for an hour, you tell me about your experience. What was that like? And I, I just want to hear about the bliss from him at that point, which it might be. He might be, 
He might be on cloud nine no matter what he's doing. But I, I know the, the tendency is for outward expression of happiness, that the, the outward seeking mind is going to, to, to talk about happiness in that way. But when we're, as Dhamma practitioners, when we're, when we're seeking inward, we're looking inward, then we have a different process whereby we can really examine our experience. And so I, I encourage everyone if, to bring this, these, these qualities of, of inward seeking up into your practice, because obviously that's happening over and over again. Um, but when the inclination goes outward, then, then it's, it is an important reflection to see, well, how's that happening? How does that work? And to, and to really look, you know, in, in some of these situations, am I always being a friend to myself? And how, how can I encourage that? Because it's such a nice image, isn't it? If we're to answer that, yeah, I am a friend to myself, then that's, that's quite an, uh, an encouraging perception to have. It's sort of like maybe at the end of, uh, of my life in my, in my Dhamma practice, whenever that can be tomorrow or who knows, 20 years from now. That's a nice goal. Do I feel like I'm, I'm being a friend to myself? Am I leading myself towards the Dhamma? Am I finding a way to, to bring my experience in and use it for insight? so that ultimately suffering is alleviated and and there's the possibility of it ending anyway sadhu <laughs>